Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We will look at current affairs and we have stories that we are sure that you will enjoy. Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We will look at current affairs and we have stories that we are sure that you will enjoy. Two decades on, the U.S. government's escapade in Afghanistan is now drawing to a close. However, history shows the troubled Central Asian nation is unlikely to disappear from the headlines anytime soon as a great global crossroads. In early July, American and coalition forces left Bagram Airfield, once Washington's largest base of operations in Afghanistan. Already at 90% completion, the withdrawal is expected to be concluded by August 31, 2021, ahead of President Joe Biden's initial September 11 deadline. Meanwhile, Taliban forces are advancing, recapturing and, crucially, holding lost territories, claiming to now control roughly 85% of the country. There are plenty of theories about the timing of the pull-out, and the effects it will have. But a closer look at history shows this isn't just about Afghanistan, but the whole of Eurasia's struggles and rise. Throughout its long history, Afghanistan has repeatedly found itself subject to invasion by various empires and kingdoms. Whilst there were periods of stable rule over the country, it has gained a reputation for its uncontrollability, earning the title Graveyard of Empires. Resisting foreign invasions, the theory goes, has become ingrained into the cultural psychology of the Afghan people. We will come back after this. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. The First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839 saw the British invade and install a friendly ruler, Shah Shuja Durrani, alongside sweeping reforms that sought to establish a centralised government and standing army according to the British model, whilst also supposedly tackling corruption. This attempt at state building prompted rebellion from the Gilzai warlords, who declared a jihad in September 1841. By 1842, the British were forced to withdraw. There would be two more Anglo-Afghan wars, both ending much like the first. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in an attempt to preserve communist rule, deposing and replacing its leader. Just as the British attempted to build Afghanistan into a friendly nation-state over a century prior, the Soviets attempted to reorganize the Socialist Party and its dominance over the country. With support from the US, the Afghan Mujahideen resisted the Soviet invasion, prolonging what was intended to be a brief stabilization mission into a decade-long war. Though the Soviet Union invaded at a moment of relative prosperity in the late 1970s, by the time of its withdrawal in 1989 a global paradigm shift was already underway. 
The collapse of socialism across the Eastern Bloc pronounced the end of Soviet civilizational chauvinism, of which the campaign in Afghanistan was a symptom. The Soviets abandoned their war in Afghanistan at the historical departure from the bipolar Cold War era to the liberal unipolar world order, which continued to crystallize throughout the 1990s. During this time, the neoconservative thinker Francis Fukuyama famously contemplated the end of history, as he and others like him believed the collapse of the Soviet bloc had ushered in Western, liberal hegemony. As that triumphalism peaked at the turn of the millennium, the United States would launch its own venture into Afghan lands. Underlying America's war in Afghanistan was the same ideological motivation that inspired previous invasions by foreign powers, namely, to fashion an Afghan state in the conqueror's image. The American political establishment was intent on carrying out a nation-building exercise that would end the state of disarray that Afghanistan had fallen into by 2001, despite more recent claims which attempt to play down the idea they had planned to leave anything substantive in place behind them. By conquering the unconquerable and turning the ancient world's hinterland into a 21st-century liberal democracy, the U.S. would have been able to cement its position as the progenitor of history's end. Yet, after two decades and an estimated cost of $2.26 trillion, the Taliban are in a strong position as the American-backed government in Kabul loses its grip on the country. The grave has been dug out and the headstone is marked, and perhaps the end of America's Afghan expedition indicates that the world has once more reached a critical point of departure from the previous order of things. When he's not busy blocking journalists on Twitter, Portuguese political scientist Bruno Macis writes. In his book, The Dawn of Eurasia, he articulates what he believes to be a shift of the geopolitical center of gravity from west to east as a result of China's rapid growth and Russia's resurgence to international prominence after its economy gradually improved from its 1990s nadir. The coming global arrangement of power will, according to Macis, consist of multiple poles, or actors, entering into competition and cooperation with one another which is in contrast to the post-1990 era of Western, neoliberal, neoconservative globalization and America as the world's police. Crucial to understanding the developments taking place in Eurasia are entities such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Eurasian Economic Union, as well as Chinese investment projects, most notably the Belt and Road Initiative. Already, these are showing signs of playing a significant role in Afghanistan's post-war environment. China has long sought to incorporate Afghanistan into Belt and Road as the missing link connecting the Eurasian supercontinent. In early July 2021, a Taliban spokesman openly referred to China as a friend, promising protection for Chinese investors coming to Afghanistan. Simultaneously, Taliban representatives met with Iranian officials in Tehran where they reiterated the militant group's commitment to a political settlement with the Kabul government, reassuring listeners elsewhere.
Iran is already an observer at the SCO, and plans to grant full membership are still on the table. That said, Russia, China and the Central Asian Stan countries are concerned that a sudden withdrawal of U.S. forces could deteriorate the security situation in Afghanistan, particularly when it comes to terrorist groups such as the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement and Islamic State is, formerly ISIS Khorasan. In January 2021, the current SCO Secretary-General, Vladimir Narov, said that IS and Uyghur groups operating in Syria were shifting militants to northern Afghanistan. If neighboring countries' worst fears materialize and the country falls into civil war, it would almost certainly undermine infrastructure and trade projects connecting east and west. A Libya-style scenario would also provide a smokescreen for continuing mercenary and intelligence operations throughout Afghanistan, as well as create a hotbed for terrorist activity that would put the entire region in an uncomfortable position, and which could be used as justification for redeploying U.S. forces at any time. The geopolitical tug-of-war that has found its battleground in Afghanistan has been called the Great Game. In this game, America's military withdrawal is likely to be just the latest move, and it still isn't clear who the winner will be, and at what cost their success will come for the Afghan people. The First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839 saw the British invade and install a friendly ruler, Shah Shuja Durrani, alongside sweeping reforms that sought to establish a centralized government and standing army according to the British model, whilst also supposedly tackling corruption. This attempt at state building prompted rebellion from the Gilzai warlords, who declared a jihad in September 1841. By 1842, the British were forced to withdraw. There would be two more Anglo-Afghan wars, both ending much like the first. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in an attempt to preserve communist rule, deposing and replacing its leader. Just as the British attempted to build Afghanistan into a friendly nation-state over a century prior, the Soviets attempted to reorganize the Socialist Party and its dominance over the country. With support from the U.S., the Afghan Mujahideen resisted the Soviet invasion, prolonging what was intended to be a brief stabilization mission into a decade-long war. Though the Soviet Union invaded at a moment of relative prosperity in the late 1970s, by the time of its withdrawal in 1989 a global paradigm shift was already underway. The collapse of socialism across the Eastern Bloc pronounced the end of Soviet civilizational chauvinism, of which the campaign in Afghanistan was a symptom. The Soviets abandoned their war in Afghanistan at the historical departure from the bipolar Cold War era to the liberal unipolar world order, which continued to crystallize throughout the 1990s. During this time, the neoconservative thinker Francis Fukuyama famously contemplated the end of history, as he and others like him believed the collapse of the Soviet bloc had ushered in Western, liberal hegemony. As that triumphalism peaked at the turn of the millennium, the United States would launch its own venture into Afghan lands. 
Underlying America's war in Afghanistan was the same ideological motivation that inspired previous invasions by foreign powers, namely, to fashion an Afghan state in the conqueror's image. The American political establishment was intent on carrying out a nation-building exercise that would end the state of disarray that Afghanistan had fallen into by 2001, despite more recent claims which attempt to play down the idea they had planned to leave anything substantive in place behind them. By conquering the unconquerable and turning the ancient world's hinterland into a 21st-century liberal democracy, the U.S. would have been able to cement its position as the progenitor of history's end. Yet, after two decades and an estimated cost of $2.26 trillion, the Taliban are in a strong position as the American-backed government in Kabul loses its grip on the country. The grave has been dug out and the headstone is marked, and perhaps the end of America's Afghan expedition indicates that the world has once more reached a critical point of departure from the previous order of things. When he's not busy blocking journalists on Twitter, Portuguese political scientist Bruno Macis writes. In his book, The Dawn of Eurasia, he articulates what he believes to be a shift of the geopolitical center of gravity from west to east as a result of China's rapid growth and Russia's resurgence to international prominence after its economy gradually improved from its 1990s nadir. The coming global arrangement of power will, according to Macis, consist of multiple poles, or actors, entering into competition and cooperation with one another, which is in contrast to the post-1990 era of Western, neo-liberal, neoconservative globalization and America as the world's police. Crucial to understanding the developments taking place in Eurasia are entities such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization SCO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization CSTO, and the Eurasian Economic Union, as well as Chinese investment projects, most notably the Belt and Road Initiative. Already, these are showing signs of playing a significant role in Afghanistan's post-war environment. China has long sought to incorporate Afghanistan into Belt and Road as the missing link connecting the Eurasian supercontinent. In early July 2021, a Taliban spokesman openly referred to China as a friend, promising protection for Chinese investors coming to Afghanistan. Simultaneously, Taliban representatives met with Iranian officials in Tehran where they reiterated the militant group's commitment to a political settlement with the Kabul government, reassuring listeners elsewhere. Iran is already an observer at the SCO, and plans to grant full membership are still on the table. That said, Russia, China and the Central Asian Stan countries are concerned that a sudden withdrawal of U.S. forces could deteriorate the security situation in Afghanistan, particularly when it comes to terrorist groups such as the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement and Islamic State is, formerly ISIS Khorasan. 
In January 2021, the current SCO Secretary-General, Vladimir Narov, said that IS and Yuga groups operating in Syria were shifting militants to northern Afghanistan. If neighboring countries' worst fears materialize and the country falls into civil war, it would almost certainly undermine infrastructure and trade projects connecting east and west. A Libya-style scenario would also provide a smokescreen for continuing mercenary and intelligence operations throughout Afghanistan, as well as create a hotbed for terrorist activity that would put the entire region in an uncomfortable position, and which could be used as justification for redeploying U.S. forces at any time. The geopolitical tug-of-war that has found its battleground in Afghanistan has been called the Great Game. In this game, America's military withdrawal is likely to be just the latest move, and it still isn't clear who the winner will be, and at what cost their success will come for the Afghan people. Now is the story time boys and girls. The boy's name was Santiago. Dusk was falling as the boy arrived with his herd at an abandoned church. The roof had fallen in long ago, and an enormous sycamore had grown on the spot where the sacristy had once stood. He decided to spend the night there. He saw to it that all the sheep entered through the ruined gate, and then laid some planks across it to prevent the flock from wandering away during the night. He swept the floor with his jacket and lay down, using the book he had just finished reading as a pillow. He told himself that he would have to start reading thicker books. They lasted longer and made more comfortable pillows. It was still dark when he awoke, and looking up, he could see the stars through the half-destroyed roof. I wanted to sleep a little longer, he thought. He had had the same dream that night as a week ago, and once again he had awakened before it ended. He arose and, taking up his crook, began to awaken the sheep that still slept. He had noticed that as soon as he awoke, most of his animals also began to stir. It was as if some mysterious energy bound his life to that of the sheep, with whom he had spent the past two years, leading them through the countryside in search of food and water. They're so used to me that they know my schedule, he muttered. But there were certain of them who took a bit longer to awaken. The boy prodded them one by one with his crook, calling each by name. He had always believed that the sheep were able to understand what he said. So there were times when he read them parts of his books that had made an impression on him, or when he would tell them of the loneliness or the happiness of a shepherd in the fields. Sometimes he would comment to them on the things he had seen in the villages they passed. But for the past few days, he had spoken to them about only one thing. The girl, the daughter of a merchant who lived in the village they would reach in about four days. He had been to the village only once, the year before, the merchant was the proprietor of a dry goods shop, and he always demanded that the sheep be sheared in his presence, so that he would not be cheated. A friend had told the boy about the shop, and he had taken his sheep there. I need to sell some wool, the boy told the merchant. The shop was busy, and the man asked the shepherd to wait until the afternoon, so the boy sat on the steps of the shop and took a book from his bag. I didn't know shepherds knew how to read, said a girl's voice behind him. The girl was typical of the region of Andalusia. 
with flowing black hair and eyes that vaguely recalled the Moorish conquerors. Well, usually I learn more from my sheep than from books, he answered. During the two hours that they talked, she told him she was the merchant's daughter and spoke of life in the village, where each day was like all the others. The shepherd told her of the Andalusian countryside and related the news from the other towns where he had stopped. It was a pleasant change from talking to his sheep. How did you learn to read? the girl asked at one point. Like everybody learns, he said. In school. Well, if you know how to read, why are you just a shepherd? The boy mumbled an answer that allowed him to avoid responding to her question. He was sure the girl would never understand. He went on telling stories about his travels, and her bright Moorish eyes went wide with fear and surprise. As the time passed, the boy found himself wishing that the day would never end, that her father would stay busy and keep him waiting for three days. He recognised that he was feeling something he had never experienced before, the desire to live in one place forever. With the girl with the raven hair, his days would never be the same again. But finally the merchant appeared and asked the boy to shear four sheep. He paid for the wool and asked the shepherd to come back the following year. And now it was only four days before he would be back in that same village. He was excited and at the same time uneasy. Maybe the girl had already forgotten him. Lots of shepherds passed through selling their wool. It doesn't matter, he said to his sheep. I know other girls in other places. But in his heart he knew that it did matter. And he knew that shepherds, like seamen and like travelling salesmen, always found a town where there was someone who could make them forget the joys of carefree wandering. The day was dawning, and the shepherd urged his flock in the direction of the sun. The sheep never had to make any decisions. They were content with just food and water, and in exchange... They generously gave of their wool, their company, and, once in a while, their meat. If I became a monster today, thought the boy, and decided to kill them one by one, they would become aware only after most of the flock had been slaughtered. They trust me, and they've forgotten how to rely on their own instincts because I lead them to nourishment. The boy was surprised at his thoughts. Maybe the church with the sycamore growing from within had been haunted. It had caused him to have the same dream for a second time, and it was causing him to feel anger towards his faithful companions. He drank a bit from the wine that remained from his dinner of the night before, and he gathered his jacket closer to his body. He was grateful for the jacket's weight and warmth. The jacket had a purpose, and so did the boy. His purpose in life was to travel, and after two years of walking the Andalusian terrain, he knew all the cities of the region. He was planning on his visit to explain to the girl how it was that a simple shepherd knew how to read, that he had attended a seminary until he was sixteen. His parents had wanted him to become a priest, and thereby a source of pride for a simple farm family. They worked hard just to have food and water like the sheep. He had studied Latin, Spanish, and theology. But ever since he had been a child, he had wanted to know the world, and this was much more important to him than knowing God and learning about man's sins. One afternoon, on a visit to his family, he had summoned up the courage to tell his father that he didn't want to become a priest. 
that he wanted to travel. People all over the world have passed through this village, son, said his father. They come in search of new things, but when they leave, they're basically the same people they were when they arrived. They climb the mountain to see the castle, and they wind up thinking that the past was better than what we have now. They have blonde hair or dark skin, but basically they're the same as the people who live right here. But I'd like to see the castles in the towns where they live, the boy explained. These people, when they see our land, say that they would like to live here forever, his father pointed out. Well, I'd like to see their land and see how they live, said his son. The people who come here have a lot of money to spend, so they can afford to travel, his father said. Amongst us, the only ones who travel are the shepherds. Well, then I'll be a shepherd, his father said no more. The next day, he gave his son a pouch that held three ancient Spanish gold coins. I found these one day in the fields. I wanted them to be part of your inheritance, but use them to buy your flock. Take to the fields, and someday you'll learn that our countryside is the best, and our women the most beautiful. And he gave the boy his blessing. The boy could see in his father's gaze a desire to be able himself to travel the world, a desire that was still alive, despite his father's having had to bury it over dozens of years under the burden of struggling for water to drink, food to eat, and the same place to sleep every night of his life. The horizon was tinged with red, and suddenly the sun appeared. The boy thought back to that conversation with his father and felt happy. He had already seen many castles and met many women, but none the equal of the one who awaited him several days hence. Looking at the sun, he calculated that he would reach Tarifa before midday. There he could exchange his book for a thicker one, fill his wine bottle, shave and have a haircut. He had to prepare himself for his meeting with the girl, and he didn't want to think of the possibility that some other shepherd with a larger flock of sheep, had arrived there before him and asked for her hand. It's the possibility of having a dream come true that makes life interesting, he thought, as he looked again at the position of the sun and hurried his pace. He had suddenly remembered that in Tarifa there was an old woman who interpreted dreams. The old woman led the boy to a room at the back of her house, it was separated from her living room by a curtain of coloured beads. The room's furnishings consisted of a table, an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and two chairs. She sat down and told him to be seated as well. Then she took both of his hands in hers. Very interesting, she said, never taking her eyes from the boy's hands. And then she fell silent. The boy was becoming nervous. His hands began to tremble, and the woman sensed it. He quickly pulled his hands away. I didn't come here to have you read my palm, he said, already regretting having come. He thought for a moment that it would be better to pay her fee and leave without learning a thing, that he was giving too much importance to his recurrent dream. You came so that you could learn about your dreams, said the old woman, and dreams are the language of God. When he speaks in our language, I can interpret what he has said. But if he speaks in the language of the soul, it is only you who can understand. 
but whichever it is, I'm going to charge you for the consultation. A trick, the boy thought, but he decided to take a chance. A shepherd always takes his chances with wolves and with drought, and that's what makes a shepherd's life exciting. I have had the same dream twice, he said. I dreamed that I was in a field with my sheep when a child appeared and began to play with the animals, and suddenly the child took me by the hand and transported me to the Egyptian pyramids. He paused for a moment to see if the woman knew what the Egyptian pyramids were, but she said nothing. Then, at the Egyptian pyramids, he said the last three words slowly so that the old woman would understand, the child said to me, If you come here, you will find a hidden treasure. But just as the child was about to show me the exact location, I woke up, both times. The woman was silent for some time. Then she again took his hands and studied them carefully. I'm not going to charge you anything now, she said. But I want one-tenth of the treasure, if you find it. The boy laughed, out of happiness. He was going to be able to save the little money he had because of a dream about hidden treasure. Well, interpret the dream, he said. It's a dream in the language of the world. I can interpret it, but the interpretation is very difficult. That's why I feel that I deserve a part of what you find. This is my interpretation. You must go to the pyramids in Egypt. I have never heard of them, but if it was a child who showed them to you, they exist. There you will find a treasure that will make you a rich man. The boy was surprised and then irritated. He didn't need to seek out the old woman for this. But then he remembered that he wasn't going to have to pay anything. I didn't need to waste my time just for this, he said. I told you that your dream was a difficult one. It's the simple things in life that are the most extraordinary. Only wise men are able to understand them. And since I am not wise, I have had to learn other arts, such as the reading of palms. Well, how am I going to get to Egypt? I only interpret dreams. I don't know how to turn them into reality. And what if I never get to Egypt? Then I don't get paid. It wouldn't be the first time. And the woman told the boy to leave, saying she had already wasted too much time with him. So the boy was disappointed. He decided that he would never again believe in dreams. He went to the market for something to eat. He traded his book for one that was thicker and found a bench in the plaza where he could sample the new wine he had bought. The day was hot and the wine was refreshing. His sheep were at the gates of the city, in a stable that belonged to a friend. He decided to wait until the sun had sunk a bit lower in the sky before following his flock back through the fields. Three days from now, he would be with the merchant's daughter. He started to read the book he had bought. On the very first page, it described a burial ceremony, and the names of the people involved were very difficult to pronounce. If he ever wrote a book, he thought, he would present one person at a time, so that the reader wouldn't have to worry about memorizing a lot of names. When he was finally able to concentrate on what he was reading, he liked the book better. The burial was on a snowy day, 
and he welcomed the feeling of being cold. As he read on, an old man sat down at his side and tried to strike up a conversation. What, what are they doing? the old man asked, pointing up at the people in the plaza. Working, the boy answered dryly, making it look as if he wanted to concentrate on his reading. But the old man persisted in his attempt to strike up a conversation. He said that he was tired and thirsty, and asked if he might have a sip of the boy's wine. The boy offered his bottle, hoping that the old man would leave him alone. But the old man wanted to talk, and he asked the boy what book he was reading. The boy was tempted to be rude and move to another bench, but his father had taught him to be respectful of the elderly. So he held out the book to the man. For two reasons. First, that he himself wasn't sure how to pronounce the title, and second, that if the old man didn't know how to read, he would probably feel ashamed and decide of his own accord to change benches. Hmm, said the old man, looking at all sides of the book as if it were some strange object. This is an important book, but it's really irritating. The boy was shocked. The old man knew how to read and had already read the book. And if the book was irritating, as the old man had said, the boy still had time to change it for another. It's a book that says the same thing almost all the other books in the world say, continued the old man. It describes people's inability to choose their own destinies, and it ends up saying that everyone believes the world's greatest lie. What's the world's greatest lie? the boy asked, completely surprised. It's this, that at a certain point in our lives... We lose control of what's happening to us and our lives become controlled by fate. That's the world's greatest lie. That's never happened to me, the boy said. They wanted me to be a priest, but I decided to become a shepherd. Much better, said the old man, because you really like to travel. He knew what I was thinking, the boy said to himself. The old man, meanwhile, was leafing through the book without seeming to want to return it at all. The boy noticed that the man's clothing was strange. He looked like an Arab, which was not unusual in those parts. Africa was only a few hours from Tarifa. One only had to cross the narrow straits by boat. Where are you from? the boy asked. From many places. No one can be from many places, the boy said. I'm a shepherd and I have been to many places, but I come from only one place, from a city near an ancient castle. That's where I was born. Well, then, we could say that I was born in Salem. The boy didn't know where Salem was, but he didn't want to ask, fearing that he would appear ignorant. So, what's Salem like? he asked, trying to get some sort of clue. It's like it always has been. No clue yet. But he knew that Salem wasn't in Andalusia. If it were, he would already have heard of it. And what do you do in Salem? he insisted. What do I do in Salem? The old man laughed. Well, I'm the king of Salem. People say strange things, the boy thought. Sometimes they say things that are so strange that you don't know how to continue the conversation. My name is Melchizedek, said the old man. How many sheep do you have? Enough, said the boy. He could see that the old man wanted to know more about his life. Well, then, we've got a problem. I can't help you if you feel you've got enough sheep. 
the boy was getting irritated. He wasn't asking for help. It was the old man who had asked for a drink of his wine and had started the conversation. Give me my book, the boy said. I have to go and gather my sheep and get going. Give me one-tenth of your sheep, said the old man, and I'll tell you how to find the hidden treasure. The boy remembered his dream, and suddenly everything was clear to him. The old woman hadn't charged him anything, but the old man, maybe he was her husband, was going to find a way to get much more money in exchange for information about something that didn't even exist. The old man was probably a gypsy too. But before the boy could say anything, the old man leaned over, picked up a stick, and began to write in the sand of the plaza. Something bright reflected from the old man's chest with such intensity that the boy was momentarily blinded. With a movement that was too quick for someone his age, the man covered whatever it was with his cape. When his vision returned to normal, the boy was able to read what the old man had written in the sand. There, in the sand of the plaza of that small city, the boy read the names of his father and his mother and the name of the seminary he had attended. He read the name of the merchant's daughter, which he hadn't even known, and he read things that he had never told anyone. What was going on? Are you really the king of Salem? the boy asked, awed and embarrassed. Why would a king be talking with a shepherd? For several reasons. But let us say that the most important is that you have succeeded in discovering your destiny. The boy didn't know what a person's destiny was. It's what you have always wanted to accomplish. Everyone, when they are young, knows what their destiny is. At that point in their lives, everything is clear and everything is possible. They are not afraid to dream and to yearn for everything they would like to see happen to them in their lives. But as time passes, a mysterious force begins to convince them that it will be impossible for them to realize their destiny. It's a force that appears to be negative, but actually shows you how to realize your destiny. It prepares your spirit and your will, because there is one great truth on this planet. Whoever you are, or whatever it is that you do, when you really want something, it's because that desire originated in the soul of the universe. It's your mission on earth. Even when all you want to do is travel, or marry the daughter of a textile merchant? Yes, or even search for treasure. The soul of the world is nourished by people's happiness, and also by unhappiness, envy, and jealousy. To realize one's destiny is a person's only real obligation. All things are one. And when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. They were both silent for a time, observing the plaza and the townspeople. It was the old man who spoke first. Why do you tend a flock of sheep? he asked. Because I like to travel. The old man pointed to a baker standing in his shop window at one corner of the plaza. When he was a child, that man wanted to travel too. But he decided first to buy his bakery and put some money aside. He should have decided to become a shepherd, the boy said. Well, he thought about that, the old man said. 
But bakers are more important people than shepherds. Bakers have homes, while shepherds sleep out in the open. Parents would rather see their children marry bakers than shepherds. The boy felt a pang in his heart, thinking about the merchant's daughter. There was surely a baker in her town. The old man continued, In the long run, what people think about their shepherds and bakers becomes more important for them than their own destinies. The old man leafed through the book and fell to reading a page he came to. The boy waited and then interrupted the old man just as he himself had been interrupted. Why are you telling me all this? Because you are trying to realize your destiny and you are at the point where you're about to give it all up. And that's when you always appear on the scene? Not always in this way, but I always appear in one form or another. Sometimes I appear in the form of a solution or a good idea. At other times, at a crucial moment, I make it easier for things to happen. There are other things I do, too, but most of the time people don't realize I've done them. The boy reminded the old man that he had said something about hidden treasure. Treasure is uncovered by the force of flowing water, and it is buried by the same currents, said the old man. If you want to learn about your own treasure, you will have to give me one-tenth of your flock. What about one-tenth of my treasure? The old man looked disappointed. If you start out by promising what you don't even have yet, you'll lose your desire to work towards getting it. The boy told him that he had already promised to give one-tenth of his treasure to the gypsy. Oh, gypsies are experts at getting people to do that, sighed the old man. In any case, it's good that you've learned that everything in life has its price. This is what the warriors of the light try to teach. The old man returned the book to the boy. Tomorrow, at this same time, bring me a tenth of your flock and I will tell you how to find the hidden treasure. Good afternoon. And he vanished around the corner of the plaza. The boy began again to read his book, but he was no longer able to concentrate. He was tense and upset, because he knew that the old man was right. He began to wander through the city and found himself at the gates. There was a small building there, with a window at which people bought tickets to Africa, and he knew that Egypt was in Africa. Can I help you? asked the man behind the window. Maybe tomorrow, said the boy, moving away. If he sold just one of his sheep, he'd have enough to get to the other shore of the strait. The idea frightened him. Another dreamer, said the ticket seller to his assistant, watching the boy walk away. Doesn't have enough money to travel. While standing at the ticket window, the boy had remembered his flock and decided he should go back to being a shepherd. He decided to return to his friend's stable by the longest route possible. As he walked past the city's castle, he interrupted his return and climbed the stone ramp that led to the top of the wall. From there, he could see Africa in the distance. Someone had once told him that it was from there that the Moors had come to occupy all of Spain. He could see almost the entire city from where he sat, including the plaza where he had talked with the old man. Curse the moment I met that old man, he thought. He had come to the town only to find a woman who could interpret his dream. 
Neither the woman nor the old man were at all impressed by the fact that he was a shepherd. They were solitary individuals who no longer believed in things and didn't understand that shepherds become attached to their sheep. He knew everything about each member of his flock. He knew which ones were lame, which ones were to give birth two months from now, and which were the laziest. He knew how to shear them and how to slaughter them. If he ever decided to leave them, they would suffer. The wind began to pick up. He knew that wind. People called it the Levanta, because on it the Moors had come from the Levant at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. The Levanta increased in intensity. Here I am between my flock and my treasure, the boy thought. He had to choose between something he had become accustomed to and something he wanted to have. There was also the merchant's daughter, but she wasn't as important as his flock because she didn't depend on him. Maybe she didn't even remember him. He was sure that it made no difference to her on which day he appeared. For her, every day was the same. And when each day is the same as the next, it's because people fail to recognize the good things that happen in their lives every day that the sun rises. The boy thought, I've left my father, my mother, and the town castle behind. They've got used to my being away, and so have I. The sheep will get used to my not being there too. The Levanto was still getting stronger, and he felt its force on his face. The wind had brought the moors, yes, but it had also brought the smell of the desert and of veiled women. It had brought with it the sweat and the dreams of men who had once left to search for the unknown and for gold and adventure and for the pyramids. The boy felt jealous of the freedom of the wind and saw that he could have the same freedom. There was nothing to hold him back except himself. The sheep, the merchant's daughter, and the fields of Andalusia were only steps along the way to his destiny. We are out of time. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. If you liked our podcast, please go to our website and leave us five-star feedback. Five-star feedback is very important for our business and it will help us to elevate our position with search engines. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.